Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. My name is Brett. I get the privilege of serving here in this wonderful church. Um, I um, got a new watch the other day and um, it says that my current heart rate is, you know, in the workout zone. I'm currently burning lots of fat. It's pumping that hard. So um, I'm preaching and I'm working out at the same time. So who said that guys can't do, you know, two things at once? So I'll calm down and then we'll get going. Okay, so I've been wondering how to start this morning's message um, for a little bit now. I've been thinking about it and we're looking at, uh, we're in Mark chapter 6, we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And I think that I felt led, I'm feeling led to actually give you the application first. Normally we do it at the end. I'd give you sort of break it down and then I'd give you the application at the end. Um, but I actually feel that it's important that we do it the opposite way around this morning. And the reason why is because the application for this, yet again, as we've discovering over and over and over again, over this, you know, going through the book of Mark, is not necessarily how we do life better but how we know Jesus more and how we know him deeper. So the application I feel, well, the only one I'm going to give you this morning is that may our eyes be open to see and our ears be open to hear who Jesus is. That is the application of this passage this morning. And I don't want you going away going, oh, maybe I should do that this week. But I pray right now that your eyes are open to see and that your ears are open to hear what this passage is trying to tell us about who our God is. I felt led, I was sitting, I think it was Friday night, um, being kept up. We got a new puppy on Friday night, so I was being kept up by my new puppy on Friday night. And I was thinking about this passage as well and, and, and how... We've been sort of going through the, the books or, or through Mark over the last couple of months. And I, f- I feel really led to encourage you in a, in a different sort of a way. Because what, what happens every week, and, and it's true, so uh, my job up here this morning, or my, my privilege up here this morning, is to let's have a look at the text and then let me try and break it down and expand it for you to see what it sort of means. But what happens every week, and it's not a bad thing, is that Mark is so much more complex than I ever ever imagined. So much more deeper than I ever imagined. His Christology is so much more higher than I ever imagined, because I'd never really done work in this book before. And what I'm... I'm finding is that we're going through these passages and we're like, yeah, it says this, but then in um, Ezekiel or we're in Isaiah or we're in... So we're, we're, and it's because he brings in so many different things. And I really felt led to encourage some people here this morning at least, not everyone, 
that you can actually read this without knowing all of that and still be filled with the, the wonder and knowledge of Christ. And I don't want to have people having discouragement to say, oh, I read this and I don't get that. Therefore, I mustn't be as holy or as whatever than the people who are actually up here doing this. What you don't realise is that I've spent the last two weeks studying this, breaking it down so I can understand it. Um, can I grab the mic? Can you grab me that mic, please? Thank you. And so it's a bit like that we're not really match fit in a way. Who's read the book Ready Player One? Anybody? Seen the movie? Seen the movie Ready Player One? No one? Well, this is going to go great then. Okay. <laughs> so, so the movie or the book Ready Player One is a, disto- is a book. I don't even know who the target audience is. I don't even know how I got it put in front of me. But it's a book, it's a dystopian future where the world's pretty much gone to hell in a handbasket. And they've, um, and they've created this online world called the Oasis. And everyone like hates their life so much that they spend pretty much all of their time in the Oasis because you can do anything and be anyone on that sort of stuff. And the book in and of itself is, you know, it's, it's okay. It's not the best book I've ever read. But the reason why I like it so much is because the guy who created, the character who created the Oasis loves the 80s. And so when you read the book, it's full of all these little Easter eggs of the 80s of pop culture and, you know, and the Goonies and all the, all the cool stuff. So I, I grew up in the 80s, so I love it. I, I, and I was like, oh, you know, it's like my childhood again. And, and so, but the thing is, I get it because I grew up in it. I understand it because I speak the language of it. But if you in 200 years time picked up that book, you'd be like, what's a Goonie? Like, I don't know what a Goonie is. They don't get it because they're starting to, they think differently, they see the world differently, they don't get the cultural references anymore. And so when we start to look in Mark, it's not that we don't understand because it's it's, it's un-understandable. It's that we don't, we're not match fit with the language anymore. We don't think like first century Greeks and first century Hebrews anymore. And we don't actually know all the nuances of the Old Testament like they used to. We live in a different time. So my encouragement before we actually start the message this morning is to don't, when you read this text, don't be discouraged because you don't see what's being sort of explained from up here that you don't get the references from Ezekiel or from Isaiah or whatever, because it's rich in and of itself. And if you want to know more, then pretty much all my information comes from a commentary. That's how I know about this stuff, because I read about it. That's all. That being said, let's get into the text. Okay, feeding of the 5,000 is pretty much... One of the most wars. It is the most famous pretty, uh, sort of passages. It's the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. And it actually is in Mark and Matthew twice. So they have the feeding of the 5,000 the feeding of the 4,000. Now I'm going to um, tell you one thing up front. I on purpose didn't read any of the other accounts. 
And the reason why I didn't read any, well, I read the four, I read the other one in Mark, but I didn't read any of the other four accounts or three accounts because Mark is saying something specific here and I didn't want the lens of looking at it through John's eyes. I didn't want to look at it through Matthew's eyes. I wanted Mark to tell us what he's trying to say. So, and I didn't want this message to be clouded by that. So I on purpose didn't look at that. But a couple of interesting things are in between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, which happens in chapter 8, which obviously we'll get to maybe in 2021. We'll see how we go. <laughs> okay. So they pretty much parallel each other, the 5,000 and the 4,000. The, the events leading up to it are pretty much the same. They're a mirror image almost of each other. And a lot of it is in relation to the missional focus of, who, of what Jesus is looking at. So the feeding of the 5,000 happens on the West Bank and it represents ministry to the Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 happens on the East Bank and it's ministering mainly to the Gentiles. And the passages in between are discussion of purity rites where Jesus starts to challenge what it actually means to be Jewish, what it actually means to be in the family of God. And then it's followed by an exorcism in Gentile territory. So it's this, not a shift, but a definite expansion of Jesus' missionary focus from simply the Jews and only the Jews to more of a Gentile mission as well. So that's pretty much where they sit. So it hasn't like Mark didn't write it down and go, oh, and wrote it again and went, oh, hang on, I forgot, but I'm on parchment, so I'll just leave it in. There's actually a reason why he's done that. So reading these verses, well, actually, let's read it and then we'll, it might make more sense. Okay, so feeding of the 5,000. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostle gathered around, gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So the context here is that the passage before Mar, uh, Jesus sends out the 12 onto their first missionary journey um, and they heal the sick, they cure and you know people, they, um, they expelled, cast out demons and stuff like that. And so now they've come back and they are now telling Jesus about it. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in, a, in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd and had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that may they that sorry, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, "You give them something to eat." They said to him, "Are we going to go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to give it to them to eat?" And he said to them, "How many loaves do you have? Go and see." When they had found out, they said, five and two fish." Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed it and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, gave to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were filled. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered five thousand men. I read that over and over again before I looked at anything else. And do you know the, the, the one question that kept repeating in my head? It's like, why was the grass green? Seriously. It's like, why, why was the grass green? Because the reason is, Mark doesn't do detail. That's an unnecessary detail. Who cares if the grass is green or not? If they're in a deserted place, was there even grass at all? So why was the grass green? That was the question. I'm going to answer it for you in a bit. But that was my question. And if you don't care, that's fine too. Okay, so there's lots of themes that are actually intertwined in this passage. um, And I'm not actually going to get to most of them, mainly because there's just simply too many. There's not enough time. And I've been rabbiting on for a little while now. I'm running out already. So a couple of the main themes which I'm not going to talk about, um, just to mention that they're there. So there's last supper motifs, um, and the other main one is that God is providing rest in the desert. That is a, a theme that is running throughout the Old Testament, that God constantly provides rest for people when they're in, in, in the desert. Um, I'm noting it because they're in the desert, and that's a theme, but that's pretty much all I'm going to say about that. And the other one which I'll touch on, which I'm not going to go into too much, is the relationship between this passage and the Elijah-Elisha cycle in First and Second Kings. And so I'll talk a bit about that, but we're not going to go into too much depth. The two that I am going to um, talk on today, we'll see how we go, is the shepherd and the provision of God. So the portrayal of Jesus as the shepherd has several outcomes in Mark um, that, that sort of that Jesus that Mark is trying to convey to the reader, and it comes from verse thirty-four where Jesus where he says that he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So him saying they were like sheep without a shepherd echoes explicitly um, Numbers twenty-seven seventeen. So Numbers 27, 17, um, the lead up to that verse is um, Moses is obvi- has obviously led um, the Israelites out of Egypt and they've been in the wilderness for a quite a period of time. And he's just found out that he's actually not going into the promised land. And so he's like, well, what's going to happen? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so also later... In, the, in, in, in Israel's history, um, when human, the human kingship has failed to actually serve the people in the context of what God wants them to do, they have been referred to as sheep without a shepherd. So these are lost people without a leader. Sheep, obviously, is often a metaphor for the people of God. Okay? They are referred to as sheep all of the time. And in the, in the Israel history and also in the ancient Near Eastern world, that's obviously the surrounding areas, um, a shepherd um, was a royal metaphor. 
And so when we start to look at what that looks like is that they're portraying, to portray God as a shepherd is to portray God as king. So Mark's language has these overtones of the kingdom of God. What does that start to look like? That these people don't have a shepherd and I've noticed that because I'm the shepherd that they're missing. And so this imagery is further expanded with a whole bunch of references to Psalm 23. Let me read it. Famous Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, and in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. So what is Psalm 23 trying to say? The psalm is a psalm of trust and confidence. It talks about this existential space between the presence of something terrifying and the presence of the Lord and the trust in the Lord in the midst of that. So a difference here with Psalm 23, though, that normally the metaphor of a shepherd is communal. Psalm 80 starts with, um, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. So when they start to talk about the shepherd, it's the shepherd of the people. In Psalm 23, he's not talking about a communal shepherd here. The Lord is my shepherd. It's very individual. And so when we start to look at the other aspects of it, so um, like I noted, why was the grass green? He leads me beside He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. And so this is part of an active agency of part of the shepherd. So he's to seek out an environment in which the sheep may thrive. Rest, safety, protection, peace, restoration, provision. So when we start to look at what Psalm 23 is actually saying, It's a statement that is found throughout the Old Testament, which is God's basic promise of, I'm with you. And it's also our response of our most basic cry of faith, which is, you're with me. It's this intimate relationship of who we are with Christ and who we are with God. As a people of God, it's not a communal thing in and of itself. It's very individual. It's very personal. To then broaden that, we move on to Ezekiel 34. So Ezekiel chapter 34 is all about the contrast between um, false shepherds and the true shepherd, which is obviously God. And 
the false shepherds are portrayed as people who are worthless, who don't care, who are un, um, not, not paying any attention to their sheep. And then contrasting that with the true shepherd, who obviously is God, who rescues his sheep and gathers them, who feeds them, who makes a covenant with them and makes them a blessing, who frees them from slavery. And in the last two verses, so verse 30, uh, 30 and 31 of chapter 34, this is God speaking. They shall know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, uh, says the Lord God. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Jesus, in the passage in Mark of feeding the 5,000, of being portrayed as the good shepherd in a way that he doesn't also just feed them physically. So you'll note that in verse 34, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So he actually restored their soul before he fed them at all. And so the imagery in this, for this theme is quite profound, what Mark is trying to say about who Jesus is. That he's a royal leader. That he's a king who is personal. That he's a king who is my shepherd, who provides me rest, safety, protection, peace, restoration, and provision. Jesus is that promised shepherd who feeds his sheep forever the other one of the other images uh, themes that I want to briefly talk about is the Elijah Elisha um, parallel and I'll briefly read it and you'll pretty much see it pretty quickly if I can find it So we're in 2 Kings 4, verse 42. And a man came from Baal Shalishah, let's say that, eh? Bringing food from the first fruits to the man of God, 20 loaves of barley and the fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, give it to the people and let them eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred people? So he repeated, give it to the people and let them eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of God. Obviously, you can see the parallels there. Don't have enough food and I've got a lot of people to feed, pretty much. So, like I said, I'm not going too much into this because I could spend the next probably 40 minutes talking about it. One of the sort of the more base things that Mark is trying to say here is obviously in that sort of proportion sense. So one of the commentators I was reading sort of broke it down that Elisha's miracle, although an amazing miracle, was in a miracle of about the ratio was about one to 20. Sorry, one in five. And Jesus's proportions wise was one in a thousand. 
So what he's trying to say at the very base level with a whole bunch of stuff that I'm actually not, I don't have time to say, is that he's alluding to who Elijah and Elisha were, that they were prophets of old that were revered by everybody and they represented the prophetic nature of, of the Old Testament times, was that here is someone who is way better, way bigger than who they were. That Jesus not only is the eschatological shepherd, but is also the eschatological prophet. Okay. Last thing is the provision of God. So Mark talks about this. He uses a few different themes. Sorry, a few different motives to sort of talk about um, the provision of God. And the first one is actually a, a, like a contextual thing. So what we haven't gone through is the, the verses right before this passage. So right before this passage, we find ourselves in sort of Herod's palace. And it's this... Um, their party that they're having, there's dancing girls, there's exotic stuff going on, there's lots of drinking, there's all the, the riotous stuff that you would expect of a party of someone who's trying to impress, impress his peers or his underlings. So that being a feast of debauchery and those sorts of things ends in death. So at the end of that, so one of the dancing girls, his daughter-in-law, whoever it was, I don't remember, and... Um, he gets so excited about that and he's like, anything you want. I'll give you anything you want. And she, went, she goes and speaks to her mum and she goes, well, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. So because he promised it, he had to do it. So the end of that story ends with the death of John the Baptist. Contrasting this to the banquet that Jesus serves, a banquet of life, a banquet of love, a banquet of acceptance. Another scenario that comes up in the provision of God is that one that represents restoration. So people who are hungry or people who are deprived of food, in and of itself are people who are deprived of life. And to be deprived of food and to be deprived of life is to dehumanise someone. And to receive food is not only something to survive, but also to have someone's dignity or humanity restored to them. Eating and sharing together in that communal sense is what humanity is about at its most fundamental level. And in this scene, we see Jesus who represents God granting authentic life back to the people who were there with him that day. The last motif that comes up in this scene is the one from Exodus. So instead of reading the three or four chapters that it covers with this, I'll just briefly go over it. So Exodus 16 to sort of Exodus 18, uh, we find the people... In the, in the wilderness and they're pretty much belly aching about everything and anyone that they can belly ache to. And so they've just witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. I'm pretty sure, I don't know about you, I would hope 
that if I'm standing on the edge of like a sea and there's an army coming to get me and all of a sudden the sea parts and I walk across on dry land, that that's a God I'd probably want to put my trust in. No? Or is it just me? No? We're all there? Cool. Okay. And so, but no, no, not the Israelites. We want more. Let's go back to Egypt. They had fish there. Okay. And so, well, they did. It is what it is. Okay. So they're complaining and all that sort of stuff. They're, they're banging on. And a couple of the things. So obviously, and, as, and anyone who knows the story knows that God uh, provided manna for them every day. So some sort of bread substance and quail. So the manna, though, it's actually quite interesting when you look at it because it didn't last. So six days of the week, they had manna given to them every single day. Well, five days a week, they had one serving of manna each, which is called an omer. Don't ask me how much an omer is, I don't know. And so if they tried to screw it away, it rotted. So in the morning, it was gone. And the next morning, there was a fresh um, supply of, of manna. And on obviously the sixth day, they would get a double portion so they didn't have to collect on the Sabbath day. And then obviously it went on. But what the Bible says, well, what the passage says, which I find quite interesting, is that some will collect less and some will collect more. But when they measured it out, they all had an omer. They all had the exact portion of what they were supposed to get, even if they collected less or they collected more. And another um, interesting fact, obviously, is that in Exodus 18, Moses is pretty much, the people are doing his head in and he's just like, I can't do this anymore. And his father-in-law was like, well, you need help. And so what he does is that he actually goes... And he sets the people down and he, and, he, and he separates them all into groups of 1,000, 500, 100, and 10. And then they had like people over them in those numbers. So when we go back to Mark and we start to look at the compare and contrast of that story to this story, obviously towards the end, Jesus had them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So it's reminiscent of the time of the people in the wilderness. And the crowd, chapter 6, verse 33. And so they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived before them. So the people here represent all the towns. They represent the people of God. When they collected the baskets, there was 12 baskets that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So these people are recognised as a representation of the Israelites. They are organised as the Israelites in the Exodus were organised. When Jesus tells them to sit down in verse 39... There's this, uh, obviously our rendering yet again, as we know, is, is pretty bad. Um, it doesn't really get the connotation. Excuse me. Um, but it's this connotation to recline, to relax, 
like you're at a banquet or a party. Be, be at peace. And so when we start to look at, this, at the symbols, the symbolism of this is of a people who are sitting around a table, reclining at peace, being led into the promised land by the shepherd who cares for them intimately. One of the other contrasts is obviously, as I noted, that the manna in the desert didn't last, couldn't be collected. It rotted. In Mark's story, in his narrative, there was so much food that was left over, it describes this extravagance of what's happening now with Jesus. And so when we start to look at what these images are talking about, um, one of the questions I'm ask, I ask myself is, does the crowd even know what's going on? And the answer is we don't know. It doesn't tell us. Has the pretty much the, mir- the miracle on the biggest scale that's ever been was it missed? Looks like it was. We see in verse 52 of the same chapter, talking about the disciples, and it says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So these are guys who have been with Jesus for a few years now. And these are guys who have just come back from a mission trip pretty much, that has healed sick and cast out demons. And the very next thing that happens, they absolutely completely miss. Which, yeah, what do, you, what, do, what do you say to that? You'd hope that you'd get it. Makes me wonder what we miss. What's going on in our lives that we don't get. So here's the Christological point that Marx wants to underscore. Here is one who is like Moses but greater than Moses. Who is like Elijah and Elisha but greater than these prophets. The statement here is a confession that not only God can bring food in the desert, but the feeding of the 5,000 shows that Jesus exercises God's power and uses it for the good of his flock. He is the true shepherd of his people. He teaches them and provides the necessary qualities for their spiritual life and abundantly feeds them and provides the necessities of their spiritual life, of their physical life. And I'll close with this. The application that I said at the start was that I pray that our eyes were open and that our ears were open, that through the midst of this that we could see who Christ really was. So in the words of a famous song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will come strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, we praise your name that while we may be thick-skulled, deaf and blind, that you are a God who can use us. You are a God who is intimate. You are a God who cares. You are a God who loves us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you that you are our provider. We praise your name. Amen.